Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Ben Hall. Syrian government forces backed up by Russian air power are on the brink of encircling the northern city of Aleppo, a stronghold of the moderate rebels in what could prove to be a decisive moment in Syria's murderous civil war. Tens of thousands of people have fled the city, and many of them are holed up at the Turkish border in desperate conditions. This latest onslaught by Bashar al-Assad's forces and their allies risks triggering another exodus of Middle Eastern migrants into Turkey and then into the EU, exacerbating tensions across Europe. It has also alarmed Sunni regional powers. Turkey and Saudi Arabia have even discussed the deployment of ground forces to back up the Syrian opposition. But such intervention seems inconceivable without US support and could lead to direct confrontation with Russian forces. Joining me to discuss the latest developments in the Syrian crisis and their wider implications are Erica Solomon, our Middle East correspondent, and Jeff Dyer, our US diplomatic correspondent. Erica, can I start with you? Can you give us a picture of what is happening on the ground right now? Basically, what's going on is that President Bashar al-Assad's forces, backed by massive Russian air power, are trying to break down what is now the last symbolic stronghold for the rebels in an urban center. They have already lost Homs, uh, which was the other big urban center that they had a foothold in, and now the main one left to them is Aleppo. And what the regime forces are doing is basically they're trying to kind of do a pincer movement around the city, which is why aid organizations are very worried that we will be looking at another siege. Siege tactics have been increasing across Syria by all parties. Hundreds of thousands of people are always seen as at risk of starvation by aid organizations. And if Aleppo is added to that, that would mean hundreds of thousands more just in Aleppo alone would be added to that list. So it's a major humanitarian crisis that can affect Turkey and, by extension, the EU. And in military terms, would it spell the end of the so-called moderate rebel forces if Aleppo was sort of cut off by Bashar al-Assad's forces? That's what I've been asking rebel representatives, commanders that I've been speaking with here in Turkey. And what they say is, is kind of yes and no. Symbolically, it would be a huge blow. Nobody can deny that, least of all the rebels. But what they say is that they are prepared to switch tactics and to evolve sort of into a more of a guerrilla force that doesn't hold territory necessarily. So while it could mean a very major blow to any kind of organized rebellion holding territory, it's very unlikely to be the end of the massive chaos and bloodshed that we have been seeing in Syria the past five years. And presumably in terms of the anti-Bashar front, it tips the balance in favour of ISIS and away from some of those groups that have actually worked with the US and other allies? That's the other big fear that rebel groups have. Right now, they don't actually know which way this is going to go. It could happen that it helps them unify in a way because now the threat is so massive. 
one of the problems that the rebels have had since the beginning of the uprising is their inability to unite, you know, constantly splitting off from each other. And oftentimes in these moments of major pressure, the rebels can actually manage to come together. So there have been some successful attempts on a local level to do that. The question is whether they can effectively use that. But on the other side, they're saying that there's a lot of young fighters who are saying, wait a minute, you told us to work with the Americans and with Turkey and the Gulf because they were going to help us gain something. And instead, maybe ISIS and Al-Qaeda were right, and we should be fighting with them. So they do see that as the major risk ahead, that they will either unite or they will be fragmented even more in favor of radical movements. Jeff, what does Washington make of this suggestion that the Saudis and Turks might try to intervene? The top line is that Washington very much welcomes this. In the last month or so, there's been a, almost a public campaign by the Pentagon to get other countries more involved in the anti-ISIS military campaign. There's going to be a big meeting in Brussels on Thursday where Ash Carter, the defence secretary, has invited all these other defence ministers there and he's going to lobby them to do more. So in that context, the offer of Saudi and Emirati help in Syria is very much welcomed. But generally the view in Washington is that both of those militaries are so bogged down in their own conflict in Yemen that they just don't have much capacity left to actually do much in Syria. So in theory they welcome it, but they're not actually expecting a huge amount at this stage. But that's taking on ISIS. Their concern is about Bashar's forces backed up by the Iranians and Hezbollah um, with Russian air power tipping the balance in favour of the regime against the moderate forces and essentially annihilating those moderate forces, no? That's what's in some ways driving the urgency from the Saudis and the Emiratis. But if they don't have the capacity to take on ISIS, then they wouldn't have the capacity to take on the Assad regime as well. I mean, there's a separate issue about to what extent the Turks are willing to get much more directly involved militarily on the ground across the border in Syria. And that's, I think, a more open question. There's been a lot of rumours and a lot of speculation and a lot of statements from various Turkish officials suggesting there's something in the works. But again, I think Washington is not entirely sure whether these are really credible threats or not. So what does the US do now? Has it not been comprehensively outmaneuvered by Moscow? Ever since the Russian intervention started in September, October, I mean, there have really been kind of three different US positions. The first that the president has sometimes articulated is that Russia is essentially getting itself into a quagmire, that there is no winner in this fight, and that Russia doesn't really quite know what it's getting involved in. It's going to end up as a kind of Afghanistan-type stalemate. And so maybe the US should sort of sit back and let them stew a bit. And even after the events in the last week in Aleppo, there's still people in administration think that's ultimately correct. I mean, the intelligence assessment from the US at the moment is that, while it's a big defeat for the opposition if they lose Aleppo, this is more in the context of the kind of back and forth of a long-running civil war. This is not necessarily a decisive engagement. And that while Assad forces now have the momentum, they don't have the capacity to actually really drive through a big win. So that's one point of view, but that in the context of this humanitarian disaster that's developing in Aleppo, that does seem very callous and very passive. The second view which in some ways the State Department has been pushing very hard, is they have to push ahead with the negotiations to try and have a political transition in Syria. And that argument would be that there is potential for a split between the Russians and Assad, that the Russians are not completely wedded to Assad, and if we push hard enough, we can try and prize the Russians away from Assad. There's still some evidence for that. I mean, there was this report that the Russians actually went to Assad end of last year and said he needed to move aside. But that does seem to be disproved by everything that's happening on the ground, by this 
concerted military campaign of the Russians alongside the Assad forces to take Aleppo and essentially to bomb the very people the U.S. is trying to get to the negotiating table over the last month. The third argument is that the Russians have played us, that the only way you're actually going to get a peace process that actually works is if the U.S. and the coalition really enters the fight against Assad, pushes Assad back, and only then will you actually get them to the negotiating table in a serious way. But then that raises all the questions that the U.S. has not managed to answer over the last few years. If you enter the fight, who are you actually fighting with on the ground? Are you going to set up no-fly zones in northern Syria, which you could find yourself taking on Russian jets? All these very difficult questions that the U.S. doesn't really have an answer when we come to the fore. So that's the question people are asking now. Have we been played? Do we need to push back? But even if that is the conclusion, there's very little sign that the U.S. has coherent answers to those questions. America's hitherto cautious approach, do you think it may be swayed by the presidential campaigns that are running and criticism, particularly from the Republicans, about the US not being more assertive in the region? That might have happened, but I think the way the campaign is playing out, and especially whatever that happened in New Hampshire yesterday, actually is going to push against that. So take the Democrats first. If Hillary Clinton had been winning very comfortably, as everyone expected a few months ago, then I think, yes, she would be out more publicly putting pressure on the Obama administration, saying you need to do more. Some of her advisors, for instance, have publicly called for no-fly zones in northern Syria, and she would be making that case in public, I suspect. But she is now facing a huge potential challenge to her left from Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, the last way that she's going to beat Bernie Sanders is by calling for a new military engagement in the Middle East. So she's not going to be pushing that anytime soon. And then on the Republican side... Yes, there's been a lot of lip service about being tougher against ISIS, and you've heard a lot of talk about carpet bombing. But the two front runners on the Republican side, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, when you actually scratch the surface of their foreign policy announcements, both of them are very wary about any great entanglements abroad. They're very wary about getting involved in new conflicts. They like the idea of air power, which is something they can seem to be decisive from a distance, but don't actually have to get involved on the ground in any of these conflicts. So if these two candidates stay very prominent, then I don't think you're really going to get much concrete pressure from the Republicans for the administration to do actual things on the ground in Syria. So the way the campaign is playing out, you get a lot of noise and fury about Syria, but not actually any real coherent pressure. Erica, is there any hope for the diplomatic track? From what I saw in Geneva last week, I think very little. The feeling I got from being there was that there just nobody really knew what the Americans wanted. And a lot of people felt that the problem was that there was what Secretary of State John Kerry thought, and then there was what everyone else kind of thought who was sitting there with the opposition in Geneva. And they just don't seem to have a connect. So that was a big problem was, you know, how are we going to actually create the conditions that we need for talks if we don't seem to be in agreement amongst ourselves and we don't seem to know what we think Russia wants to do. So I think that's still a big problem. The one potential point for optimism, if you want, is we do have a meeting in Munich coming up this weekend. And there has been talk that Russia has made a new proposal to the U.S. So maybe both sides will try and actually sit down and decide what it is that they want to accomplish in terms of diplomatic negotiations. But I think that is being somewhat optimistic. The situation on the ground is kind of taking on a life of its own. Okay, that's it for this week. My thanks to Erica Solomon and Jeff Dyer. World Weekly is produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams 
who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Bye-bye.